Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPBMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPBMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. If you're interested in any of Walter's music, walterparks.com. Good place to look, and Davine Dial, thank you so much for all the work you do managing WPVM. If you'd like to reach me, jamesnave.com is a good place to do that. And today, I, I have no guest, and the reason why is I'm taking a walk down the Rim Road. I've been living in the same place now for almost 15 or 16 months. For some of you out there listening, that might not seem like a very long time. For me, it's, it's quite, a, quite a bit of time, really, mostly because I have spent my life traveling, and I didn't really start all the traveling because I wanted to be a, a world traveler. I actually started traveling like I'm doing right now down the Rim Road, and I suppose it's funny enough I say I'm not traveling anymore, and yet I do walk down this road almost every day. I walk for an hour or so, and so in a sense, I suppose one could say traveling doesn't necessarily require that you cover great distances. You can travel on a walk that takes you an hour out and an hour back, or a half hour out and a half hour back, depending on, on your mood and the how much time you have. But coming back to my idea of, of traveling, I started my travels years ago, and I don't know why I did that. It must have been something pushing me, something giving me a, a wiggle, a sense of what's around the corner, what's over the mountain, as I used to hear people say when I was growing up, often on these conversations on the Rim Road I'm having with you, if I tend to refer back to Western North Carolina. Funny enough, this is Taos, New Mexico. And of course, New Mexico is very within Western North Carolina. Here I am stating the obvious. I mean, the biggest difference between New Mexico and the Southwest and the Carolina mountains. And the biggest difference, of course, it's wet versus dry. Here it's very dry. Funny enough, it can be very hot here, and the sun can shine into your windows, or does shine into the windows of your car. You open the windows, and with a little air coming through, even on a very hot day, the car cools down. The car on a hot day in, in the east, especially in western North Carolina, gets so hot it's like a sauna. So the difference between North Carolina and the Southwest, Taos specifically here where I'm walking down the Rim Road today, is dry. There are other differences as well. The dry gives us weeds that look a lot different than the weeds in Western North Carolina. I'm walking a fence line coming to the end of the driveway, going to make a right on a dirt road that will lead out to the rim road, which is paved. And I'm making it right by a big, beautiful stables for horses. 
Morningstar Stable at 23 La Canada Road. There are a few horses there, horse trailer, nice house, large riding arena. To my left, I have a magpie on the pole. I have a, a volunteer fire station. You wouldn't know it's a fire station. It has no windows to speak of. You can't see in, but I know there's a truck there because I've seen people out cleaning the truck. Coming back to this walk down the rim road, I often will reference back to growing up in North Carolina when I think about what to say. I don't prepare this show. I let the beat of my feet, the beat of the land, just inform what comes next. So, travel. I am traveling this morning on La Canada right now, and it's a dirt road. Moving along, it's early in the morning, and not many people out. Maybe somebody will come by and I'll say good morning to them. That'll be nice. I always like to do that. So, back to the idea of travel. You travel. I travel. We all have to go somewhere. Most of us have distances in our lives. I imagine you have gone great distances, or not. When I was growing up in western North Carolina, I didn't travel much. Actually, we stayed fairly close to home, and in fact, I remember being proud of the fact that I hadn't been anywhere. Grounded in this land, and I don't have to go anywhere. Now, that's an interesting proposition, because it's more than possible to, to stay very close to where you were born and still have a wide expanse of thinking, a wide expanse of movement. You don't necessarily have to travel the world and get vast experiences in order to have a, a rich, meaningful, thoughtful life. Now, there may be some of you out there who might disagree with that. And there was a time when I was in that camp, and the reason why was because I, for some reason, wanted to see more. Coming back to the mountains, I'm surrounded by mountains here. Some are 13,000, I imagine one or two, 14,000. Large, high elevation. I believe I'm at about 8,000 feet walking down this road right now. Of course, it's flat. You'd never know it was 8,000 feet. You have no way to measure that. And yet, I can feel it because the air is thinner. In western North Carolina, you'll get up to 6,800 feet if you go to Mount Mitchell, up the, up the parkway, they call it, and you'll be somewhat high. But the idea, when I was growing up, of the mountain was not the mountain that you climb. It was the mountains you go over. I'm going over the mountain, my mother would say to me, or she would say, you can go over the mountains or over the mountain. And the idea, of course, going over the mountain is what's on the other side? What's, what's over there that's not where you are now? What will you see over the mountain? <laughs> what will you find? And how far do you have to go to see what's over the mountain? Of course, we all know going over the mountain can be as simple as stepping out your door and looking around at, at something that's new, something that's different. For me, I kept thinking, over the mountain, I wonder what's over there. Now, I have to admit that I enjoyed the, the westerns on television when I was growing up. And it was the, 
era of the westerns i suppose and i don't know if those westerns were really about the west more about the television version of the west and occasionally i would go to the movies and watch the big screen and i would see some kind of western movie on the big screen but mostly the western movies or tv shows i saw were on the evening times on saturday night and i would watch some of those shows and you would see the ranchers living on say the ponderosa which was the name of the the ranch and i think it was somewhere in the california mountains supposedly and there was one father and three sons and they rode around on their horses and they would have a gunfight and they would draw their pistols from their posters and round up the cows and they would have some kind of dilemma with a villain each time well really what we were looking at was the television version of the west so when i was living as a boy watching these tv shows i thought my goodness i would like to go west some people in other situations might think oh i would like to travel to South America or Central America or oh I want to go to to Europe or I want to go somewhere to Asia to Siberia to to the North Pole maybe even to the South Pole I wanted to just go over the mountain and see what was in Tennessee now Tennessee was my family's birthplace on my father's side in in Johnson City Tennessee it was called Chucky my father's family came from there. The story goes the family moved down the Appalachian ridges, possibly from Pennsylvania, and settled in eastern Tennessee. And then my grandfather came over the mountain to Asheville to work at the Farmers Federation, which was a, a co-op that sold farm implements to all of the farmers in, in western North Carolina. So I grew up there in that area and always thought of Tennessee as just a little north of Asheville. And yet I knew that Tennessee stretched out to the Mississippi. And so I wanted to go to, uh, to Tennessee. Oh, we're having a little gathering of the Brewers Blackbird at the moment. The place is packed with Brewers Blackbirds. They were, they've just finished their nesting time. So all these little chirp chirps are click clicks or whatever you want to call it are, are part of the the new birds figuring out what the world's like and the older birds helping the new birds figure out what the world is like so i'm walking past the the Asakia right now it's a stream that that runs through the area to irrigate the land it's very green here and i'm still on the dirt road so anyway speaking of roads here we are traveling to tennessee from Asheville. i always wanted to go west and I knew west was part of Tennessee so off I would go in my imagination and at some point in my growing up my need to see what was on the other side of the mountain overrode my prideful attitude about staying in one place I knew that somehow if I wanted my life to have a broader experience base I, I needed to go wander around now the thing about wandering around traveling around you can do it in them multiple multiple ways some people will just get in their car and they'll drive from point A to point B to point C and 
scratch the surface a bit. And I certainly did that. I actually enjoyed just scratching the surface, passing through a town or two, having a stop at a coffee shop and sip a bit of coffee and watch the people come and go on their daily routines. I, I enjoyed scratching the surface. And in fact, when you travel, if you just move, 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 it's very easy to just stay, stay on the surface. How could you not? It takes a long time for a plant to grow roots. It takes a long time to really get the feel and the beat of a place. So in some ways, a goodly bit of travel is superficial in that sense of I'm just passing through, I, I get a feel for the area, and I continue on. I remember years ago, I traveled for the first time through Taos, this area that I'm in now. And funny enough, I was on a road trip and I think it was the 70s. It was back in the time when travel was certainly not connected to the GPS systems we have now by way of our smartphones and other devices. We traveled by Rand McNally road maps and, and we would have the old worn tattered map would sit on the seat and you pick it up, look at the stadium and think, well, I'll go this way. And sure enough, the roads were there. And that's an interesting thing. The roads will always be there regardless of how you get on them. In the 70s, I was on the road traveling around, doing my superficial, superficial travel, if you will. And I came through this area and I vaguely remember coming through Taos and I remember the shops along the main road curio shops, shops with all kinds of odd metal sculpted creatures. And you know, they still have those shops here. You can drive past those shops and you'll see big dragons sitting on the rooftop or great large birds that you can't identify because they don't quite look like anything. Maybe those birds are penguins perhaps, or could be some kind of bird from a rare place that you've never heard of but it's all made out of metal. So you can still drive by those shops to this day. They're big actually. And see all those animals standing about. I always thought it'd be fun to have one in the front driveway or the front lawn if I ever had a place to put one. That's kind of a fantasy. It was a superficial drive through Taos. The fantasy wasn't so superficial. The memory is certainly not superficial, although that's the only memory I have of Taos, New Mexico, as I drove through in the 70s. Of course, Taos was a very vital, fertile place during that time, and there were artists and, and travelers and people of all stripes living and working here. That was the time of the, of the communes. So in this area, back in that era, who knows how many communes were around, but there were a lot of them and they were all devoted to more of a group community approach to governing themselves. So it was more consensus, people shared their wealth, a bit socialistic really, and they all came and, and went, and yet from those communes we had a lot of cultural experimentation that I suspect somehow continues to this day. I don't quite know how that works, but I'll, I'll bet you somebody out there listening 
maybe you've done some research on it and you know how those communal experiences back in the 70s influenced the way we think now. I suspect the biggest influence those communal experiences had on what we do today, I suspect it's from a nutritional point of view. Because back then, folks were living on the land, if you will, or living from the work they put into the land. Here we are back to the root systems. Here we are back to depth versus superficiality. So those folks were growing food and eating organic, and many of them were vegetarians. Not all, of course, but a lot were. And that was also true in, in Western North Carolina as well. Morning. You out bird watching today? You seeing anything? Well, there's bound to be something. I've, I've used to bird watch a fair amount through here and just don't see much. It's kind of quiet. But I'm doing something interesting right now. I'm recording an hour-long radio show as I walk. So your, your voice will be on the show as I, as I broadcast it. So I do a stream of consciousness thing walking down the road. And then when I see somebody, I say hello to them. And, and it becomes part of the radio show. So good luck on your bird watching. Okay. Well, there was my first, first guest, a, a guest on the show. I told you I was not going to have a guest, but lo and behold, I, I did have a guest. This fellow is a bird watcher, and I bumped into him yesterday, and he didn't give his name. He has a little white hat on, and he smiles. Notice bird watchers smile. I've been a bird watcher, still am. I have a pair of binoculars, and try to spot the birds. There aren't as many of them around here as you might think. I've been wondering about that. What's going on with, with the birds here in New Mexico? It's usually a lot more active in the morning, but it's very quiet. I'm beginning to think those birds have gone somewhere else, or it might be an environmental thing. People have noticed the heat, and I mentioned the 95 degree day in Western North Carolina versus the 95 degree day here. If you're living in Western North Carolina, your 95 degree days are not supposed to be regular occurrences in the summertime, and yet uh, I think sometimes that's starting to happen more and more. We clearly is all over the world. So I wonder what those birds are up to. I would say that was more of a rooted proposition than a superficial proposition. The birds are traveling elsewhere or they're not here here at all. I don't, I don't know about those birds. We'll see. But coming back to the, the communes in, in Taos and the way the communes have influenced the, the way we think now, we are more aware of the relationship we have with nutrition. And so when you go to any grocery store, you'll now find an organic food section. Now that's true in Whole Foods, true in other natural grocery stores. It's also true when you go to Walmart. Walmart, I believe, now has an organic section, and most large grocery stores do. So that would be an example of how the communes of Taos, and of course there were communes in western North Carolina, communes in Tennessee, probably all over the place. It's not, they weren't unusual, wasn't re restricted to one area. So that would be how we are influenced by our history. And there's so much of that influence that go, goes on. And I think that 
when I was getting itchy for the travel, I wanted to go out into the world and discover where those influences came from, discover how they influenced me. I suppose I did discover some of those things. I remember a few years ago, I had an opportunity to visit one of the communes here in Taos. It's called New Buffalo, and it was in, in Hondo, which is not too far from here. In fact, if I look west a bit and go down the hill, I can get to Hondo. And so I imagine I'm even right now, maybe four miles from that, that old commune called New Buffalo. Now it's one of the few remaining communes left over from that time. Now here we are again, as I said, back to the roots. Those folks came in to this area in the 70s. They were young and, and they raised their children on the commune, New Buffalo. So you had at least one generation of people coming up and then the next generation of people coming up all there on, on the commune. Now what I found that was interesting about New Buffalo when I had the opportunity to go there, I went for a covered dish dinner or a covered dish supper. Somebody said, hey, would you like to drive over there? It's, it's going to be really interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll go hang out and have our covered dish supper, covered dish dinner. So I brought a little dish and showed up at New Buffalo. And funny enough, the vibe there that day was the same vibe I had experienced at all of the covered dish dinners I'd been to. When I was in Asheville, and I've been in Asheville, North Carolina, as much as I've been here in Taos, New Mexico, even though I've traveled all over the place, I'm like a bit like the homing pigeon. I'll come back to an area and, and stay there. So in a sense, I am a traveler, and yet I, I do love to be in one place. Like here, I've been for 15 months, and my only travel has been up and down the Rim Road and to the grocery store and to the post office. So back to those covered dish dinners. Over the years, I've had plenty of, of occasions to go to the covered dish dinners. So that afternoon, it was Saturday. It was in the summertime. It was warm. I arrived at the New Buffalo commune with my friend and we stepped out and it was the strangest sight, really. Not because the area was strange, but the demographic was strange. The people who were there, the range was great. There were old hippie types dressed up for the party and they had they had rainbow color shirts and and ties that fit around their necks and the rainbow color shirts were t-shirts their ties designed to fit underneath the collar but weren't underneath the collar the ties were just around their necks and they had these odd hats on and when i say odd hats like stovepipe hats with maybe a little flower coming out of the band that wrapped around the, the hat. Some of them were in wheelchairs and they were smiling. There was a character that came out of that era named Wavy Gravy. He was a bit of a clown really, even though I don't think people thought of him as a clown, but he had that same type of dress, the tie-dye t-shirts, the, the baggy pants. Oh, here comes a car, the first car of the day. Now I have to move out of the way in order to keep the car from running over me because the car is driving into the sunrise and I'm walking away from the sunrise. Anyway, back to Wavy Gravy, I've come to think he was a clown 
and I don't mean that in a, a negative way. It's just he he had that look of a clown, and clowns are, are interesting characters. I once took a clowning workshop when I was teaching teaching in an area in France called Le Bouffetier. I was at a house with some friends of mine or acquaintances. Some were friends, and we were doing a weekend of creativity and. This clowning teacher came over from London and, and taught clowning. And the only thing she had that made her look like a clown was a little red nose that she put on her, her nose. So she covered her nose with a red nose, and or really a red ball. And we did clowning. I learned that clowning is different from acting in the sense that as a clown, you respond to the external environment. So the tree takes on the role of a person, or the fence post can be the tin man, or the flowers growing along the road, the little purple flowers, they could be a flock of birds perhaps, and then you as the clown, you interact with the flowers, the flock of birds, whatever you're engaging. And in some ways, if you look around right now, you'll, you'll see all kinds of things. I'm looking right now at a telephone pole. It has a round shield on the bottom and the shield is rusty. It's probably a, the lid of a 50 gallon barrel that's nailed to the pole. And then as I go up the pole, I see wires running in many directions and there's a transformer on the pole and the transformer has rust on. Now the transformer, if you've not ever noticed a transformer on a pole, the transformer is what transforms the electricity into usable kilowatts that will go to your house and then turn your lights on, like maybe the lights that are on in your house right now as you're, as you're listening to this. So anyway, the clown in Normandy taught me how to interact with things like the, the telephone pole. And it was really fun. You would flip over a piece of paper and, and what's underneath the paper and, and your imagination would take over and your imagination, of course, dances with your rational mind. And somewhere between the rational mind and the imaginative mind in the dance, something appears underneath the paper and then you interact with it. So that's how I understand clowning. So when I say Wavy Gravy was a clown, he, he dressed like the circus clown, or he maybe didn't intend that, but it did begin to appear that way. And he interacted with the world around him. So down there at the New Buffalo Commune, when I was was arriving and looking out on the on the grass and the and the gardens, here were all the old hippies sitting in their wheelchairs. Now, not everybody was in a wheelchair, of course. Only a few people were in the wheelchairs. The older ones, and these characters were maybe in their mid-80s by this point. Who knows? And they seemed really rather happy. Now, I mentioned the demographic contrast. What was on the other? end of that age range. Well, sure enough, there was a class there from Rutgers University. It was an archaeology class. Now these students were all young graduate students, fresh-faced, happy, like the old hippies sitting in their wheelchairs, thrilled to be in this spot that was unusual, was different. They were there to research the culture, to find what was, what was there, what made it tick. And so the table where the covered dishes all sat reminded me of all those tables I'd seen in, in my life in the past. And the people gathering around were very earnest, thoughtful people. 
and they would dish their their brown rice the salads and you always have two or three folks there standing near the table looking at the dish they brought and they're very proud of it many of them made their salads from from the vegetables they picked in the garden so they they were looking for a bit of approval oh that's your dish oh, that's really fantastic i can't believe how beautiful it is thank you for making it and the person smiles and feels good and i think that's good i think it's good to get approval if somebody puts a little bit of effort into something approval is a wonderful way to acknowledge that effort so those graduate students I imagine they were looking for their own kind of approval. They were certainly there. They had traveled all the way from, from New Jersey, from the Northeast, to come to this foreign, strange environment, a commune, something they maybe had read about in their textbooks. And now, lo and behold, here it was before them. They had an archeological dig on the backside of the commune, not too far from the house where the covered dish dinner was taking place and the students had also taken over one of the other buildings and in that building they had tables and shelves and they had all the items they had so lovingly I guess you could say or academically found in the ground out behind the houses the hippies built in the 1970s and they had artifacts. There was the Whole Earth Catalog there. The Whole Earth Catalog was one of the main books people read back then. Helped them live on the land. The Whole Earth Catalog, Whole Earth, everything contained on the earth, was an, an aspirational book that was probably 400 pages long. It was a rather large book. It was a manual, really, more than a book. And in it, there were all kinds of of stories and there was one story about this fellow who was driving a Volkswagen bus called Urge and on each page the story unfolded throughout the entire book and this fellow I don't remember anything about the fellow other than the bus was named Urge and I like the idea of the urge the urge to go over the mountain the urge to travel the urge to scratch the surface superficially or go down deep like the New Buffalo Commune did and these students. They'd traveled and now they were there and, and they were learning about another era, another time that maybe was influencing them and they didn't even know it or maybe as archeological students, they did know it. So back to that room with all of the artifacts in the whole earth catalog. These students were starry eyed, as I said, curious. It's the way students really should be, I suppose. Why would you be a student if you weren't starry-eyed and curious? And they had 22 shell casings, 22 being the 22 rifle shell casings. And there's the short 22 and the long 22. These were the short casings. And if you've ever seen a 22 rifle, you know it's the smallest of all the rifles. And it's still a dangerous weapon. Certainly wouldn't want to be shot with a 22 short or a 22 long or anything else for that matter. And so the casings were all there and other odds and ends. And some of it looked familiar to me because I had, I had seen it in my life. And of course, it didn't seem particularly of any importance when I saw it. It was just another item, like a, an American spirit cigarette package. 
that's still around now. It was there then, I think. I'm not positive. I'm trying to remember. I don't actually remember all of the things that were on those shelves, but I do remember being struck by how many of them I had seen before in what I considered ordinary circumstances, not in some archaeological collection made by graduate students. And so the young student who had dug up the 22 casings was wondering, well, what, what were these about? Why, why would you have 22 casings? What were these peace-loving hippies doing with, with 22 rifles? I didn't know. But somebody standing right beside me said, oh, they were shooting and eating prairie dogs. Now, it never occurred to me that vegetarian hippies would shoot and eat prairie dogs. And even now, when I am talking about it, I'm not sure that is even true, but I, it made sense. And of course, prairie dogs are quite common around here. And in fact, prairie dogs have tremendous populations in fields. So why not shoot a lot of prairie dogs and, and turn them into stews? It might not sound appealing to you, but I imagine it, it made sense to the, to the people in New Buffalo. And if for some reason that's not what they were doing, we have to wonder what they were doing with all those 22 rifles shooting what? Who knows? If not prairie dogs, might have been other kinds of game. Could have been rabbits, some kind of birds, who knows? So the student who asked the question when the person said, oh, they were eating prairie dogs, you could see this student putting that bit of information into the hopper. Now, one of the things about being at a distance, looking at something like the New Buffalo Commune and being trained to look at it as an investigator, really, I imagine that archaeological dig those students were involved in turned out to be a rather insightful study because they probably learned things about those new Buffalo residents. The residents didn't know. They probably learned things about the old hippies sitting in their wheelchairs that the old hippies didn't know. I remember interacting with the old hippies and, and the young students, and I suppose I was kind of in the middle. I used to fancy myself as one of the hippies, but you know, I was never a very good hippie. I was a failed hippie. First of all, I was never able to get my hair to grow out because I started losing my hair early in my life. I was bald on top by the time I was 27, so you can imagine when I was in my early 20s, even if I wanted a big, thick head of hair, I eh, it was not part of my life. So I was failed hippie. And I don't say that in a regretful way. I say that more in an insightful way. I simply was unable to conform to the protocols of the folks in those communes, to the protocols of the hippies. I remember I wanted to go be part of the movement. And I did have some opportunities to engage. And yet when I engaged, I felt like I, I didn't quite fit in. And I'm going to propose something here that you might find surprising or you might push back on. But I, I think 
and I'm fairly sure, at least this is how I translated this, as I said, I couldn't conform. So I think a lot of the 60s and the 70s, it was a time of what a lot of people nostalgically refer back to as the time of rebellion. And indeed, people did, in a sense, rebel against what they had grown up around. And they went off and had an incredible mixture of joy and a lot of exploration, and there was a lot of cultural adjustment. And yet within all of that enjoyment, exploration, and cultural adjustment, there was a fair amount of conformity. You needed to dress a certain way. I remember flannel shirts were part of the uniform. In the summer, you had cut-off jeans. And in the winter, you had Levi jeans. If you could get the ones that had the button fly, that was better than the ones that had the zipper. And there were boots. I had a pair of desert boots, and I wore those desert boots every day. And I did have that uniform. I did dress with the flannel shirt. And I did have the 501 button-up jeans, and I did have the, the desert boots. And I was very proud of my uniform. And I thought it was me being me, being different. And yet, upon reflection, it was a uniform. It was conformity. I'm not opposed to conforming. Conforming brings us around to form. We conform, we make form, we create some kind of form. How could we not? We are, by nature, forms. Human beings have the human form. The magpie on the rim road by the acacia that's running now, full of water, it has a form. The acacia, the water here, the irrigation ditch, it has an incredible form. And maybe you can hear it. I'm standing right beside it. I'm looking down onto the ditch from the road, and the ditch is running through the dry area of Taos, and yet it's... It's rich and lush, and it sounds no different than the streams you would find in, in western North Carolina. And where I am now, I'm watching the water go by. The water's running down over some stones. The ditch is maybe three feet wide, and there's a bit of a turn, and the water makes an eddy kind of turn. And then there's a bit of white water, and then it goes on its way, headed down to the Rio Grande, and eventually it will either be used for irrigation and taken up into the into the hay and alfalfa of the land or it might make its way all the way to the to the gulf of mexico so conforming is a good thing here's where conformity has a problem or here's the the glitch if you will if one conforms to a situation that does not suit their style that's when you bump into a bit of a problem and I think that was what happened to me when I tried to conform in that, they called it at the time, counterculture. Tried to conform with the, with the hippies, with the alternatives. And all of those terms were used with great pride. And I used those terms with great pride. And I still, I still like the idea of alternative thinking. If somebody presents an idea to me, it's, it's really interesting to look at the different angles that idea might have. An alternative way of thinking of something. Flipping things around. I said earlier, the rational mind and the imaginative mind. There's always this talk of 
getting out of your rational mind. You have to get out of your rational mind. I reject my rational mind. I'm not going to be in my rational mind anymore. I'm getting out of it. Get out of your rational mind and, and be imaginative. I think there's an alternative way to look at that. I propose stay in your rational mind. How could you possibly get out of it? It's one of your greatest assets, that rational mind you have. What I propose is, as I said earlier, develop a relationship between your rational mind and your imaginative mind. And let your imaginative mind lead the dance. Let the imaginative mind be the part of you that goes over the mountain, if you will. Let the imaginative mind be the part of you that considers the acequia running underneath the road that I'm walking on right now, considers that as the Mississippi River. Oh, it's only three feet wide, but my goodness, if I were a small, tiny, creature like an ant staring down, it would seem to me the size of the Mississippi. That's my imaginative mind. And then when it dances and informs my rational mind, I have what we have right now, which is form, which is me walking down the rim road, waiting for the beats, listening to the brewer's blackbirds, thinking of things to say, and staying on the beat, staying on the thinking. So being in the rational mind, and the imaginative mind is a term of conformity, a sense of conformity. We are conforming, so how could we not conform? I am not saying I'm opposed to conformity. What I am saying is when one conforms, it's probably a very good idea to conform within an environment that suits your personality. Conform within an environment that suits your needs. I never really liked wearing desert boots. I was conforming, and in this case, the form was on my feet. I was conforming to a standard, a protocol that didn't suit me. I prefer beautiful shoes. I really, really don't like desert boots. Give me a pair of really well-made cowboy boots or a nicely designed pair of Italian shoes. Now, I, I be the first to admit I don't have a big collection of, of those kinds of shoes, but I do have a couple of nice pairs of shoes that I enjoy wearing. I spend a fair amount of time shoe shopping online. I, I love to look at the, at the shoes. I'm currently considering a, a pair of shoes that are slip-ons called Allbirds. Now, I have seen many ads for all birds in the last year. I'm very slow to act when it comes to marketing. I simply seldom respond to an ad in the very beginning. Although I have to say, I'm an ordinary consumer. I will respond to an ad, and if I see something that catches my eye, that I fancy, I will eventually, eventually buy it. And I would be a good person to invite to a focus group around how one responds to ads. I saw the Allbirds ad online maybe a year ago and it was a it was a video and the video was of a of a woman and funny enough she she was wearing a, a long flowing dress not unlike the dresses the hippies wore at New Buffalo Commune back when they were young and wearing their sandals, handmade sandals, I'm sure, made out of leather. And this woman was wearing this beautiful dress and she was walking down a path, smiling, it was sunny, 
Couldn't have been a nicer shot, and she was wearing the Allbirds shoes. Now, their pitch, which is for our shoes, are made out of all-natural products. Now, if that does not take us back to the all-natural communes, I don't know what does. So here I am, no different than the students from Rutgers, the graduate students who were researching the New Buffalo Commune, and here I am back to an excellent example of how those experiences back then influenced the culture, so much so that I am subconsciously drawn to all birds' shoes, likely because of the image of the woman walking down the path. Now, as the Allbird company continued to present its shoes to me, the videos changed, but what didn't change was the joy the people had walking around in the natural environments, and sometimes in the urban environments, with their Allbird shoes, the natural materials. So here I am smitten with the Allbird shoes, and the main reason I am drawn to them is because they seem to be making wonderful slip-ons, which I like, which brings me back to the desert boots. The desert boots, I thought, were a bit dowdy, a bit ordinary, and yet I wore them, and I wore them happily, and I, I was conforming. And as I said, my conformity with the desert boots, the Levi's 501 jeans with a button-up fly, the t-shirts, the flannel shirts, and I have to admit, I never did wear tie-dyed t-shirts. I, I drew the line. I couldn't possibly, possibly do that. I just, it undid me. Now, I might, <laughs> it might be wise for me to maybe get myself a tie-dyed t-shirt, change my perspective, wear the tie-dyed t-shirt around and see, see how that affects me. I, I don't know about that. I didn't fit into the hippie culture because I was more inclined to iron my jeans. It's, I, I preferred the button-down blue shirt, the button-down white shirt, a nice cashmere sweater, a good belt. Today have smart wool socks, merino wool. I like merino wool. I have a few t-shirts made of merino wool. So one of the things about that era that didn't work for me, not only did I feel like I had to conform with the, the jeans, the flannel shirts, and desert boots, I had to stay within a certain frame of consumerism. I could only consume items and present myself wearing items that were within the more utilitarian framework, if you will, utilitarian territory. I like that, utilitarian territory. And, and so that's what I did for a while. And I noticed after a bit that I just grew tired of it. I moved away from it. And as I moved away and started ironing my shirts again, which I'd done when I was a boy, and always loved to iron. I still do. I just ironed a couple of pair of new jeans to yesterday and ironed a shirt. Used spray starch for ironing. So when I moved back to the ironing of my shirts and, and all of the things that I love to do with my clothes, I started to get a sense more of who I was. Now, if you are naturally drawn to desert boots, jeans, flannel shirts, tie-dye t-shirts, and you wear those, and those 
fit your style. Those fit your, your, your mood. They fit you. And it's a natural way of doing things. And you feel so comfortable in that. Then you have conformed within the context of your own style, your own sense of who you are. And if that suits you, all power to you and, and to your style. If you are in a situation now and you feel like it's off, you feel like you haven't quite landed in the place that, that you, you know you belong. Maybe your soul tells you you belong there. Maybe your, your destiny is telling you you belong there or you don't belong there. Either way, a place where you belong or you don't belong, there's something inside of you that, that knows that. And when you relax and maybe explore, when you travel, when you do things like walking the rim road as I'm doing now and coming close to the end of this time together with you on this walk, I've gone down half an hour and I'm now coming back a half an hour and I'm back at the fire station. I just passed the stables. I'm getting ready to turn on onto Calle La Paz, the road I live on, just off of La Canada. I just made the turn and I'm now walking by the fence I mentioned earlier. So if you find yourself wondering if you're off the beat, likely you are. Now you may not necessarily be that far off the beat and I'm not suggesting that when you're feeling off your beat you have to change all that much. I mean it might be a simple matter of rearranging your house or, or getting rid of that old ratty chair you don't like and going to the thrift store. Ah, oh, there's another reference to the older communes. The thrift stores, I think, rose out of the communes. And I'm a big fan of thrift stores. I think a thrift store is a great place to go to get fantastic stuff. And it's a good way to make a contribution to the, to the larger environmental impact. The thrift store is a part of that communal experience. It's a part of those 22 shell casings. It's a part of the whole earth catalog. It's a part of that dance that the young graduate students from Rutgers did with the old hippies with their tie-dyed t-shirts and their ties and their stovetop hats sitting in the wheelchairs. The dance goes on. The world continues. It is a whole earth and it continues to be that and always will be. So coming back to how one rearranges the territory, how you can rearrange your territory. You might just want to get rid of that chair, go to the thrift store and buy something else. That might be all you need to do. Like all I needed to do was get rid of the desert boots and put on a, a, a nicer pair of shoes, a pair of shoes that, that fit my feet, made me feel good. Now I mentioned traveling when we started and that's really been the theme of this whole time we've been spending together. I will say and this will maybe be something I'll talk about in my next trip down the Rim Road. I, I don't do this very often. It seems like about every three months. It's a seasonal thing. This is the summer walk. I might have another one later. I might have two summer walks. Who knows? But it seems to me that when we find our, our beats, it'll take us in directions we've always expected, but maybe we find surprising even so. So what I learned about traveling, I'm drawn more to the graceful aspects of living. Instead of the covered dish dinner, I prefer a quiet table, well set, a slower pace, a room with a view, if you will. I love the idea 
of a room with a view. And of course that implies the view is out the window, uh, maybe along with a gracious table. I mentioned the clown workshop in Normandy, in a little area called Le Bouffetier. Uh, we were there in a beautiful setting. It was a large house owned by my friend Jennifer DeGant, and she had invited her colleagues to come for this workshop. And we did have a beautiful table outside, and the table did have fantastic food. And in some ways it was no different than the new buffalo food. The food had been harvested from local gardens, had been prepared by a couple of people who were in our group who simply loved the idea of contributing and making food. Now what's the difference in that and the new buffalo commune, those covered dish dinners? Not really all that much. I did feel more comfortable at the table in, in Normandy than sometimes I felt at the, at the covered dish dinners. So my friends, I'm coming to the end of this, not because I want to, I could probably talk for another hour, but I'm coming to the end of it because I'm coming to the end of my walk and back to form, conforming. I'm going to conform now to the end of my walk. I have one hour to do this conversation with you in and that hour is coming to its close. And so we have, we have taken the walk, past the horse barns, gone to the New Buffalo Commune, discussed bird watching with a stranger. I know you've heard the Brewer's Blackbirds, they've raised their young, so here we have the Blackbirds and, the, and on the wire, the old and the young, the old and the young at the New Buffalo Commune. My memories, old and young, your life, with all of its memories, old and young. And we just move on with what we're doing and come to the end of the story as we're doing now. And on that note, I'd like to say thank you ever so much for taking this walk with me and listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online. WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Community Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song. Thank you, Devine Dial, for all the work you do. WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about Walter Parks, and WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more about our community radio station, JamesNave.com. You can connect with me by way of that website. And I do appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Things, golden kings, then.
turn And then there was a girl A very special kind of girl She wandered very far, very far Over land and sea She was a little shy And sad very wise, very wise was she. And then one day, she happened to pass my way. We talked of many things, golden queens. Then she said to me, the greatest thing. to be loved.